0: Devoncast From Radio X Welcome to Devoncast It's Devoncast guys, it's not the Devoncast The boss pulled me up on this the other day It's just Devoncast, it's not the Devoncast It's like saying the Facebook or something like that So it's just Devoncast Uh, Welcome along, we're taking our regular look At the issues affecting your lives across Devon We're interested in politics, people, decisions How we live, work and enjoy our county I'm Guy Henderson I'm Bradley Gerrard And we have a guest in the studio, Daniel Mumby, our counterpart in Somerset. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. Nice to have you along, down from Somerset for the afternoon. Uh, We'll be talking to uh, Daniel a little bit later on about local government in Somerset. Uh, Things are are fairly tense, I imagine, in council meetings in Somerset at the moment.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of sort of difficult decisions going on, a lot of very awkward looks of how on earth are we going to get ourselves out of this mess. Yeah, it
0: is. and this is all to do with the financial situation section 114s and all that sort of thing
1: yeah uh, we're about two three weeks away from final budget setting we've got the big executive tomorrow um and there are the the picture is changing all the time in terms of how much is being spent and how much help the government's going to give uh we found out as we'll we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail further into the podcast but we found out that the The planned 10% council tax rise that they wanted to put, which is double the legal limit, has been refused by the government. So that means there's much less room for manoeuvre in terms of how much they can plug the £100 million budget gap by savings and selling off assets.
0: Chaos. We'll get to that a little bit later on. We've got on the podcast this week, we're going to Mars in Exeter Cathedral. Uh, We're talking to the acting chief constable, Devon and Cornwall. We're talking broadband. We're talking Dartmoor. But first of all, We're talking devolution, the D word. Uh, It's all about devolution in Devon right now, and we're going to try and unpick what it all means. I'm going to need some help here, though. Bradley, you've been in uh, Devon County Council meeting this week talking about it all.
2: Yeah, exactly, Guy. Yeah, there was a whole uh, cabinet meeting dedicated just to that sole topic. Um, obviously, cabinet meetings are where the Conservatives who control the Council pretty much just nod in, in agreement ordinarily, and the opposition yeah. say mean things. Um, it wasn't massively different this time, although the Conservatives were a lot more lively. Um yeah, the opposition have various concerns about it, um, notably how it's actually going to work in yeah, in, yeah. You know, in actuality. Um, you know, you've got the proponents saying it's not another level of government, whereas oppositions are saying, well, it clearly is another level of government. So what use is it? Because I mean, the bottom line is it, what's
0: happening is that the le- Department of Leveling Up, the government's Department of Leveling Up, is, is devolving some powers to a new combined Devon and Torbay authority. What it actually means is a little bit up in the air at the moment, isn't it? It means that the, the, the authority will have more control over transport, public transport, adult education. Uh, it gets to negotiate firsthand with the government rather than going through any other regional body. And there's £16 million pounds prize fund up front for capital projects.
2: It's true, but it's a bit curious, isn't it, to go through a process called devolution whereby you create... A higher tier of government above county Mm. level, so I think that's what some of the um, opposition parties in Devon are concerned about. That, their their view I think is one that actually devolve this, one that just speak more directly with the par not necessarily parishes but districts and you know tier two county authorities that have these powers. And yes, you're right. There is 16 million pounds. that is arguably kind of new money that the council has a direct line of uh, discussion with having. But another pot of money that proponents are making a big thing about is almost 15 million pounds. Really, that already comes to Devon anyway. And the only difference yeah. is that this um, combined county authority, as it will be known, will maybe have a bit more control of it. But in terms of that money's effect on the ground, it won't be massively different, so say no. the opponents anyway. And and there'll be no mayor, that's another big thing. People were expecting
0: us to have an Andy Burnham down here, having a a mayor of the combined Devon, but that's not going to happen.
2: It's not. And actually, I think that is one thing all the parties in Devon do agree on. They're pleased there's not a mayor. Um, I mean, John Hart, the leader of Devon County Council, got a lot of uh, pats on the back from his colleagues about getting the process this far. Um, But he even got a pat on the back from the opposition parties for avoiding the prospect of a mayor. I think the notion of that for this area just would be something that, that the council just couldn't really imagine. I think maybe with a more urban combined county authority, maybe there's a bit more... Like, it's a bit more of a homogenous mm. um, set of people that a mayor can oversee, whereas in, in Devon, the vast area that a mayor would oversee would just be yeah, a, a bit a bit disparate, I think. So I think people are pleased we're not going to have a mayor version of this new level of government. And
0: not all the district councils are all that happy about it either. But you had a, a really nice quote from Julian Brazil, who is the leader of South Ham's. He is the leader of South Ham's. Counselor.
2: Yeah, he's a county councillor and leader of South Ham's. He's a Lib Dem. Um, and yeah, he was calling it the Torbay tail wagging the Devon dog because um, the way this um, CCA will work is that there'll be uh, six key members, basically, like individuals, three from Devon, three from Torbay. But the point that was being made by Councillor Brazil and also Councillor Lever and other Lib Dem and um, Labour and the independence as well was that the, the size of the Devon County authority versus Torbay is way out of whack, you know. It's sort of, I think yeah. Devon's population is probably like three, four times Torbay's, but arguably Torbay's going to have the same amount of power notionally to yeah. decide where this new money goes, where they use the existing money that already goes to Devon. So, yeah, there's that worry by some that maybe Torbay is getting a, a big win out of this and Devon is maybe ironically ceding some control. And another issue that irked um, uh, some of the parish, um, not beg your pardon, the district council leaders that were there, is that districts have responsibility for housing, but this new combined county authority will have a direct line with Homes England. And okay. that irked some because... uh, districts are saying, well, we have that relationship with Homes England, we have that discussion, but now that's going to be removed from us. And even though Devon won't take over the role as a housing authority, that will remain with districts. What some districts are concerned about is the relationship they have with that central government department could be eroded or even got rid of entirely because Homes England might go, oh, we can't talk to you now because we've got to talk to the Devon-Torbay combined county authority.
0: And of course, the other oddity about it is that Plymouth are not part of it. Plymouth were all along going to be part of this, but decided quite late in the process that it would leave them actually with less bargaining power than they have at the moment. Oh, that was the, the the way they saw it. Interesting. I mean, we'll come to a, we've got a couple of interviews in a minute. But the event that I was at where the government minister came down and launched the whole thing. Uh, everybody, without exception, said the door's still open to Plymouth, and you know they, they're quite keen to have Plymouth along, not least because Plymouth, of course, has got this freeport thing going as well.
2: Yeah, and that still is going ahead, and in effect, Plymouth not being part of this um, CCA doesn't impact that. That is still going ahead. That is still a thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, even even John Hart was said, you know, said the same thing that you just yeah. said, their guy that yes, doors open if you want to come back in, but they made their decision relatively late on. They didn't want to do that apparently. Many in the business community in Plymouth are not too happy about that. But, yeah, the the politicians in Plymouth clearly think that they're better off out of it. I'm going to give myself a shorthand test now. About two
0: hours ago, I was in... uh, I I wasn't in it. I was covering online a Teambridge Council overview and scrutiny meeting. And Richard Keeling, who is the deputy leader of Teambridge Council, Liberal Democrat, um, was voicing some of his misgivings about the devolution deal. And he said, and I've got to read my T-line here, uh, I haven't read this back since the meeting. It's not a good deal for district councils. Uh, more money going into Devon County Council, which is the big gulper of money and controller. I don't think that it'll be good for the district councils of Devon. And that's Richard Keeling. He's quite an influential politician. So uh... Yeah,
2: and I think that, that echoes I think some of the concerns that were um, outlined in the meeting at Devon County Council that I went to as well. I think there's just a fear that for all the suggestion that this new authority will be you know very collegiate and there will be district council members on it they will there will be representation from the districts but um, the way it will make decisions there's two tranches of decisions general and reserved matters or something and those six we mentioned earlier the three from Torbay and three from Devon have control over one set of those there's only one set of decisions that everyone has a say on and for some districts that's a concern it is so let let me take
0: you to the uh, the meeting at the Epic Centre in Paynton, the um, Electronics Photonics uh, Innovation Centre in Paynton, where a government minister came down to sign off, ba- basically, to launch the deal. They did it properly with bound volumes and big pens and things like that. It was like the signing of a peace treaty, <laughs> Amazing. Or something like that. But it was it was interesting. And I asked uh, Torbay Council Leader David Thomas about the things that might change through devolution and uh, and those that won't. Uh, this is him.
3: I think the key question on the doorstep is going to be, is this the end of Torbay Council? Or is this the end of Brixham Council? Well, absolutely not. So the the councils that are already in place, they stay in place. Um, Torbay Council and Devon have been working really close together. There is an opportunity to solidify that relationship, but more importantly, have some powers passed down from national government these are powers that are not decided locally at the moment these are powers that are decided in london and those powers basically are today given the opportunity for those powers to come down to a local level to be made at a local level but also as and as importantly the money attached to that uh, decision so instead of you know talking to our residents and they say we want to do xyz and you say well that's great unfortunately it's out of our remit and we go and try and lobby for that we'll actually be able to have the power to make that decision locally have that money to implement that decision locally that's david thomas the leader of torbay council um
0: obviously torbay and devon very much in favor of the cca um and it was a day that uh, john hart who we've just mentioned devon county council he he'd been looking forward to for a long time uh, he was keen to stress that the door remains open for Plymouth to join in the fun. I actually had to take him outdoors there, as you can hear from um, David Thomas. It was pretty noisy there. Uh, they'd broken out the coffee and croissants by that point, so it was, <laughs> it was getting a little bit, um, a little bit rumbustious. So I took, uh, I took John Hart outside, and, and this is what he had to say.
4: This is a very big day for Devon and for Torbay. Something I've been looking forward to for the last three years. was never sure we were going to get there because it has been a set of hurdles put in front of us that we've had to jump over. Working together, if you think about it, eight districts, one county, until very recently, two unitaries, but now only one unitary. Working together for the cause, the same cause, people of Devon, to benefit them, to grow our economy, create prosperity... We also will take charge of the levelling up fund. We will be closer to government on levelling up. We will also have the opportunity to get closer to Homes England. And that is a district council benefit, not the county, because we're not a housing authority. But we will be supporting the district council. Torbay will be benefiting as well on this. I am sad that Plymouth isn't playing with us, because I do think that Plymouth, Devon, and Torbay, the whole of the county of Devon, Plymouth decided it didn't. It has a, it has a reservation. Okay, I appreciate that, and that is your choice. I won't criticise them at all. All I will say is that we will be prepared to work with them, and we will continue to work with them, because, of course, as I said just now, the Freeport, all the growth of the Freeport is going to be in Devon, and on the basis of that, we'll have to work with them, and we're not that foolish not to work with them. That's John Hart, the leader
0: of uh, Devon County Council, and we we'll give the last word on this one to the Minister who is actually the Parliamentary Under-Secretary of State for Leveling Up. Jacob Young, he's Conservative MP for Redcar up in the North East, and he celebrated his 31st birthday this week. He's a very young, up-and-coming MP. Very nice guy as well. Happy birthday to him. And here's what he had to say about the devolution deal uh, and how it means giving power to the people.
5: I'm here today to announce the Devon and Torbay Level 2 devolution deal, uh, which is progressive devolution for this county, uh, taking a step forward on the devolution journey, and it enables us to say that we've increased devolution to 60% of England uh, uh, over the last few years. Uh, This means for Devon and Torbay... Uh, The integration of the local enterprise partnership, uh, uh, the ability to set their own adult education budget and their skills priorities locally, and the uh, ability to set a new regional transport plan for the whole of uh, Devon. So I think it's it's a fantastic step. Uh, for Devon and Torbay today. It's progressive in terms of its devolution. It's not transformational. It's not going to, you know, people aren't going to have to elect a mayor or anything here. Um, But I think it's a great step on that devolution journey for this great county. This deal comes with £16 million of capital investment. um, But this deal is more about handing powers down from Westminster uh, to Devon and Torbay. Ultimately, though, it's for local people here to decide how those powers are used. I'm not going to uh, tell Devon and Tolbert they need to be doing this or they need to be doing that. Ultimately, the reason why I'm here today, the reason why we're devolving power is to put that power in local people's hands.
0: That's it. So the minister, we'll give him the final word on that. When the boss said to me about six months ago, devolution's coming up. There are going to be a lot of stories coming up on devolution. I want you to steer the uh, devolution coverage. I wasn't quite sure whether it was a bit of a poison chalice or not, but it is absolutely fascinating. The way this is going to play out is really interesting. Uh, The
2: public consultation starts quite soon, doesn't it? It does, testing my memory. I believe it starts on the 12th of February for six weeks. Uh, I think that's right. And there will be, um, I believe, events held across the eight districts, as, as John Hart said in your clip there, that there are eight districts that will be involved. So there will be events in all of those, and people will have a chance to come along and make their views known. And all the district councils
0: will meet and all the councillors will be able to air their uh, misgivings as Richard Keeling did. Uh, Then it's going to be interesting. So we'll move on with the podcast a little bit later on. We'll be meeting and chatting to our Somerset counterpart, Daniel Mumby, who is sat here in the studio with us. We'll be talking to the Acting Chief Constable of Devon and Cornwall, talking broadband and keeping the peace on Dartmoor. But, uh, But first of all, our roving reporter, Honey Forty, You may remember in the last podcast she was in Exeter Cathedral. um, She was talking monarchs with the man behind a spectacular sound and light show. She's been back to the cathedral again. Uh, She's been exploring Mars inside Exeter Cathedral. Uh, Luke Jerome's amazing sculpture, which is called Mars, War and Peace, is on display in the cathedral throughout this month, throughout February. Uh, This Mars that we've got in the cathedral is seven metres in diameter, features detailed NASA imagery of the red planet, uh, here's the Dean of Exeter, uh, Jonathan Greener, if I can actually get the uh, the recording lined up properly. He's talking about what effect the Mars installation in the cathedral has had.
6: For the month of February, here in the cathedral, we have Luke Jerome's art installation, Mars. Uh, it's the third of his installations we've had. We had uh, the first year we had the Museum of the Moon, then last year we had Gaia, the Earth, and now we've got Mars, which is a seven-metre-wide... Uh, Installation, which looks, well, it, it's a photo reproduction of Mars and it hangs in the cathedral and it's lit up and it shows us the red planet in all its glory and it gives us a chance of an encounter face-to-face with the planet.
7: Did you have any personal reaction to the piece of art?
6: Well, I've been looking forward to Mars coming because I thought I knew something about the moon and I knew something about the Earth, but, but Mars is this mysterious planet and it looks marvellous. It, 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 it looks rather barren. And that strikes you, uh, the lack of life, really, compared with the, the previous things. So, but also, I mean, it's such a wonderful setting to see it in, because we've got this glorious, luxurious building surrounding it, and here's this austere red planet hanging in the middle. People often wonder why we do these things. And there are two reasons we do them, really. The first is that um, it's important for us to think about the universe, about creation about the world God's given us and uh, the universe God's given us and the part we play in that. And I think one of the things that that is striking about Mars is how barren it is, as I said. And it makes us think how fortunate we are uh, to live in this lush, green planet of ours. And it does strengthen us needing to look after that. That's one reason. The other reason is here are we responsible for Devon's Best Building. It's a treasure that belongs to the people of Devon, but actually for many people it's like the furniture. It's always been there and we need to put on certain things that allow people to come in and enjoy this wonderful space as well as the artwork it contains. So I think those are the reasons we try and bring people through our doors.
7: Do you think that um, an artistic event like this has an impact of getting people through the doors by increasing the amount of visitors or new visitors?
6: Certainly the past two years, it's brought through a lot of people, many more than we'd normally get in this miserable cold month of February. And also, it brings in lots of people who have not been to the cathedral before, which is wonderful, because we want to open up the place, we want everyone to enjoy it. It brings in families as well. It was marvellous, for instance, with the moon, to see lots of children in their space costumes dancing around under the moon. And we hope here that people will come uh, dressed as Martians or whatever, come and enjoy the space for the whole of the family for the whole of the family.
7: So would you say it's your opinion that this exhibition could be enjoyed by atheists or religious people alike?
6: Absolutely. It's not here. I mean, the cathedral is here for everyone. Clearly, we're a place of Christian worship, which happens morning and evening every day. But the building uh, belongs to everyone in Devon and is here for everyone to enjoy. And some people will come here and be touched by the building, touched by the glory of God, just by the splendour of the place. I think all of us are beginning to realise that uh, global warming is a reality just from the weather we face day by day. I mean, we've had, you know, the hottest year on temperature, the hottest Jan- wasn't last month, the, the, the hottest January on record. Something is changing in our planet. And I hope that by encountering uh, the universe, by, by seeing uh, what God's given us, it will just make us do a little bit more, each of us, uh, to to look after the the planet that's been entrusted to our care
0: martians in the cathedral We'd have thought it. Whatever next.
1: I would concur with his assessment, by the way. It is Devon's greatest building.
0: I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful building, and we don't make enough of it, do we? We don't visit it enough. We don't... Um, yeah, you're right, Daniel.
1: I would also say I'm wondering which would be a better backing for that installation, the even song, little glimpse we just heard, or whether it's too late to mount a production of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, <laughs> and project it in front of that. Maybe next time. I would buy a ticket for that,
0: without a doubt. That, by the way, was Jonathan Greener uh, talking to Honey 40 about the exhibition Mars, War and Peace, uh, which is on in the cathedral for the month of February. Now, the voice you just heard there, if I didn't introduce, Daniel Mumby, uh, who is our Somerset counterpart, local democracy reporting service man in Somerset. Are you one of one in Somerset? I am.
1: Yes, um, I have a colleague by the name of John Wimpris who covers the North Somerset and the Bath and North East Somerset, so Jacob Rees-Mogg's country, and as a result of that, he's very busy. (laughs) Um, But I cover the historic county of Somerset, so everywhere from Porlock to Froome and everywhere from my home in Chard to uh, Midsummer Norton and Radstock or just over the border from there.
0: And Somerset is like Cornwall, isn't it? You you have one authority. You don't have a, a county council and district councils anymore.
1: Yeah, as of April last year, I keep having to remind myself that we're in 2024, we are we are officially unitary, where the county council and the four districts disappeared overnight, and uh, so far it doesn't seem to be going too well <laughs> in terms of a lot of the promises that were made about, uh, oh, we'll have £18 million pounds a year in savings and everything will run smoothly, and... Less than 12 months later, we're staring down the barrel of effective bankruptcy. What Whatever
0: happened to to Woodspring? Because that was one of the district councils, wasn't it? Whatever happened to all the district councils then? They just disband or they become consumed into the new authority?
1: Yeah, I mean, when they were making the business case for unitary, they were very careful to avoid the words merger. Mm. I mean, you have to bear in mind as well that only four years before this happened, we had Taunton, Dean, Borough and West Somerset Council joining forces to become Somerset West and Taunton in what was branded a shotgun wedding because Taunton Dean had lots of money and West Somerset had essentially a bunch of elderly people who didn't pay much council tax and therefore they didn't have many services. Um, so that is already fresh in, the, in people's memories and there was a feeling that when the districts essentially gave over their services to the new unitary authority, there was a fear that they would just carry on doing it the way the mm. county council had operated. And county hall had always said, no, it's not going to be. It's going to be a whole new way of working. Everything will be fine. But what we find is that they've essentially inherited a lot of the county level structures. And there are individual teams still in there because we haven't gone through the transformation process with all the redundancies and the recruiting of the people we actually need to run the services. So it's it feels very kind of artificial and transitional at the moment. And I yeah. think it will probably feel that way for at least another 18 months.
0: So I mean, there must have been em- enormous costs involved in taking on staff, TUPI staff, dealing with buildings and, and infrastructure and all that kind of thing. Has that contributed in some way to the uh, the financial predicament that Somerset's in?
1: Well, it depends who you talk to. I mean, the the cons- the. The move to unitary was very much uh, the baby of David Fothergill, who was the lead, the Conservative leader of the county council until May 2022, when he lost the local elections, and he was very much making this this argument of we may have to pay a certain amount up front to get through the transition, but then it will save a certain amount of year because you'll have one chief executive rather than five, you can bring planning together, you can bring licensing and environmental health under one roof and it'll all be fine. And now he's the one, along with his shadow cabinet, sort of carping from the sidelines saying, well, if we were still in power, we would be doing this properly and you're just ignoring all our advice. Whereas the ruling Lib Dems will turn around and say... Well, actually, we didn't want this in the first place. We're making the best of this mess that we can and we still don't really like what we're doing. So just let us do our thing for a bit.
0: And the background to all this is the the ever dwindling amount of money that central government gives to local authorities trying to make ends meet, cost of living crisis, Mm. everything that councils pay for has gone up. So in some ways, to have a little bit of sympathy for them trying to balance these books.
1: Yeah, I mean, the huge problem that we've had that's put us from the kind of precarious position that most local authorities are in of, we'll have to make a few savings here or there, but we'll mostly be okay, to where we are now, is the aborted open book exercise with adult social care that the government started, where essentially the cost of delivering adult social care in the southwest is relatively cheap per unit compared to delivering it in, say, London or the South East. And the government... Uh, specifically the Department of Health and Social Care, basically went to all the major providers and said, tell us what you're charging. We will then share that information and try and set a national standard for how much it will cost so that we can bring it into parity. So they got all that information. It was made public. And then the government had a change of heart and said, mm, it's a bit too tricky, like all of adult social care. We're just going to leave that for another day. And that meant that the operators could turn around and say, oh, we're not charging you that much of the Southwest. Let's just raise our prices and keep on raising them and raising them and when you compound that with the fact that it's very difficult to recruit social workers and carers and large portions of Somerset particularly the former West Somerset area are incredibly rural with no university relatively little infrastructure I mean West Somerset doesn't even have a mainline train service Um, it is incredibly difficult to stop those costs from rising exponentially on top of the fact that you've also got inflation in The construction industry being huge, which means that all your road repairs and road building goes up, and very soon you've got no money left to play with. And you've got a a crisis meeting tomorrow. Yeah, so we have been in financial emergency mode since early November, and we had an initial set of proposals that came forward for scrutiny in early January. Essentially, boiling down to, we've got a hundred million pound projected budget gap for next year, along with around seventeen million in year, which will be plugged by reserves. Of that, £35 million will be plugged by savings, so that's everything from uh, stopping school crossings to keeping the Octagon Theatre in Yeovil shut until they can figure out how they can pay for the regeneration of that. Some of the savings have been picked up by town and parish councils, including the rescuing of the Yeovil Recreation Ground, or Mudford Rec, as it's known locally, where the town council have essentially stepped in and said, we can't have this closing, this is like the the uh, the petri dish for future generations of athletes, just let us look after it so but there's still 35 million pounds worth of savings that will be cut then you have um, the sale of commercial assets which will raise probably 20 million in the first 18 months and then a further 10 million further down the line that's selling things like offices that they don't need anymore retail investments that were made under the district council era and you know we we talked about this in the past that it's not an ideal time to be trying to make a money on the profit market on the property market but needs must And the remainder of it is going to be done through controlling borrowing and something that's called a capitalization directive, where essentially the proceeds of what you're selling off, you can use to run day to day services rather than having to use them to build new roads and schools and everything else.
0: Interesting time. So I, I quite envy you that meeting tomorrow. I might come up and join you. By all <laughs> time, means, time for a Somerset cast.
1: It's not uh, going to be a short one. I can tell you that.
0: I scribbled down one question as well that I needed to ask you. Having read a couple of your stories, while I was just doing a little bit of homework on uh, on what was going on, has the council given up on Bridgewater or not?
1: I would say no, but they are they are taking. There's a number of very difficult decisions that they're having to take. So the background of this is that. Bridgewater has been very fortunate in that it has got a lot of both government funding through levelling up and the towns deal and a large amount of private investment as a result of having Hinkley Point C on its doorstep. It's like the nearest town. It's got two motorway junctions, so it's very good for the supply chain getting out to that part of the Somerset coast. And one of the grants that they got from the government back in late 2021, so the first round of levelling up, was just over £10 million to redevelop what's called the Bridgewater Northern Corridor. For those who've never been to the town, you come off at Junction 23, you've got the Dunball roundabout at the top, you go down the A38 Bristol Road with the express park and the big new police custody suite, which is sort of looming ominously in the background, and then you end up at another roundabout called Cross Rifles, where the A38 and the A39 from the levels meet. It's very, very congested. So they got £10 million to fix that, and they thought, great, started going through the design work for the Dunball scheme because they had to figure out how to fix, essentially, a motorway junction without it backing up onto the motorway. And Holmes England was saying, until you fix this, we can't let you build any more homes in that part of Bridgewater because there's just nowhere for the traffic to go. Then, of course, the what's wonderfully called in the national press the Truss Fiscal Event happened, and that has sent the price of <laughs> construction materials soaring. Uh, along with other inflation and they have essentially turned around and said well we need to do the stuff at Dumball we've already spent some of the money on walking and cycling improvements along the River Parrot to take people away from the A38 we'll still do that but we can't do what we wanted to at Cross Rifles of putting in a new lane so that you can get onto the A38 so what we might do is just move some of the crossings that are already there put in another cycle lane or two if we can to take you away from the roundabout and cross our fingers that'll be okay and understandably the Two local division members who happen to be Labour Party in a uh, town that is historically a Labour stronghold, it'll probably be a three-way marginal at the next next general election later this year, have uh, thrown up their arms and said, "Um, no, this isn't good enough. This is one of the most congested parts of the town. What are you playing at? And there are some tough discussions going on as to how they figured out this problem. We're going to follow that one.
0: We certainly know more about Somerset than we did when we came in, Brad, don't we? So uh, That Dan- is true. Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we've still got a lot to come on the podcast. We'll be talking in a moment to the Acting Chief Constable. We'll be talking broadband and keeping the peace on Dartmoor. First of all, police news. And uh, uh, this one st- story comes to us from Ali uh, Stevenson, who isn't with us on the podcast this week. She's in a meeting. So she sent us this piece, which is about a proposal to raise the police element of council tax by just shy of £13 a year for an average household in Devon, and that was accepted last Friday. Uh, If you live in a band D property, you'll pay £274.50 every year for police services, and this will then be added into your council tax bill, along with whatever your parish, district, county council, and the fire and rescue service uh, put in there. It's a complicated thing, your council tax bill. Uh, but the income, it helps maintain the number of officers uh, in Devon and Cornwall, which is currently 3,610, the highest ever in the force, and will allow more of these front uh, front desk police inquiry offices to be reopened, which is what the public have said matters to them. So, Acting Chief Constable Jim Colwell uh, tells us why, after years of austerity and managing efficiencies, he'll be focusing on compassion and quality this year.
8: From my experience, and I've been in policing for a while now, what I saw in terms of the impact of austerity, a, a, you know, a, a, a reduction in available resources, and yet an increase in demand in terms of, you know, some of the vulnerability playing out in our local communities. You know, the the, the discussion within policing, and I've seen this in, in other police forces as well, and talked talk with senior colleagues up and down the country, is this real focus on uh, the management of demand as a, as a, success, as a success for policing. So, um, you know, we became really good at you know, being able to measure demand coming into policing and how efficient or productive it might be to move that demand through the organisation. What we took our eye off, and this is my personal opinion, is um, quality. So it became a game of numbers rather than focusing on the kind of outcomes we were delivering for our victims of crime and our communities more broadly. And that's very much why I want to get the focus back into policing in terms of, you know, um, our success should not be about how many widgets we've moved through, it's about the outcomes we've delivered in, in, in that process and the quality of those outcomes rather than just the number
6: of them. And the other focus seems to be on violence. Serious crime has gone up or violent crime has gone up. That will, that, that will be a focus for your officers?
8: Absolutely. I mean, thankfully, we don't have the same levels of serious violence that other parts of the country have. I mean, a, a good you know, um, example of that is level of um, knife crime. You know, I'm not complacent about that. But we know from both our own um, experiences day-to-day within our communities and the actual uh, stats and the numbers, we've got very low levels of um, admissions into hospital as a result of um, knife-caused um, uh, injuries, for example. But we do know that you know, amongst young people nationally, and it, it will be happening in Devon and Cornwall as well, the prevalence of carrying a knife for personal safety is is a real issue um you know so working with schools working through our youth engagement um officers to really get the message across about the dangers and risks associated with car- just carrying a knife um you know is really important to us um and that's just one element of serious violence i mean domestic abuse is a real um area of concern for us we've got actually our population um is uh, has a higher percentage of women in it more generally than other parts of the country. So. You know, we get uh, uh, you know a larger percentage of reported domestic abuse to us than other many other police forces, and the challenge around that is is you know it, it's it's clear and present both in terms of providing a service that victims of domestic abuse can really engage in and have confidence in, and then delivering really meaningful um, uh, interventions with perpetrators of domestic abuse is a real key focus for us, and making sure that our service is consistent across our geography, working with partners in order to deliver safeguarding for domestic abuse victims is really important for us.
6: Mm. And as far as the public concern, they're going to be mm. seeing all police officers on the street, said that today, um, and there's going to be a, an improvement in the 101 service, which I know is that you've been improving that for mm. a while, but you're saying now that the um, 82% of the calls are being answered within 20 minutes, so that's an improvement on the hour that people were talking about previously?
8: Yeah, and, and, you know, this is really important for us for far too long. The level of service that we provided there for, for a a range of issues and reasons, um, wasn't where we wanted it to be. You know, over the last 12 months, we've really focused on that. We've brought in new leadership, new management process. Uh, we sought to change the culture within our contact centres to focus on that service rather than anything else. Um, we brought in new technology, which has taken a while to embed, um, but now we're e- really able to exploit the potential of that new technology. So we're moving resources around in a really flexible, agile way to cope with different levels of demand, whether that's you know digital demand, emails coming in, one-on-one coming in. Uh, the focus is always on answering 999 calls, and I'm really pleased to see the levels of Um, service we've been able to sustain since August actually uh, where we're consistently over the national service level agreement of 90% within 10 seconds being answered within 10 seconds Mm. Um, but 101 still remains a focus for us I'd like to see that abandonment rate come down even further from the 25% it is now uh, probably to a level closer to 10% if we can get below 10% and maintain that then that's a really good level of service from, from our perspective.
0: That was Acting Chief Constable Jim Colwell talking to our colleague Ali Stevenson. Uh, members of Devon and Cornwall Police and Crime Panel unanimously supported the increase in council tax, which equates apparently to the cost of a pot noodle each week. Pot noodle fans over the other side of the desk can't stand them. Can't stand
2: them. Can't can't say it's something I uh, regularly reach oh. for in our cupboard at home, though. No.
0: Okay, well, I'd better uh, I'd better concur then, and um, make sure you can't see the one that's in my bag at the. Uh, other brands the are
1: available, of course. <laughs>
0: uh, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um,
2: Broadband. Brad, you've brought a broadband story to the table this week. I have indeed. Um, So this story came about when I was sifting through a finance-related agenda for Devon County Council, actually. And I spotted this near £8 million windfall they'd received through a broadband scheme and puzzled as to what this was. I got in touch with them. Essentially, Devon put some money into a pot alongside Somerset Council, actually, uh, central government and the EU into a, an organisation called Connecting Devon and Somerset. A name, you know, nice zippy name. That's what it says on the tin. Yeah. Um, and the aim of that organisation, CDS, as we'll call it from now on, um, was to connect some rural homes and businesses to fast broadband, by which I mean full fibre. So that's proper high speed broadband. Um there has been great success here with the scheme. It has connected more than 320,000 homes and businesses to a full fibre broadband, which in a county like Devon is is fantastic. Um, but now the county council has received a £7.8 million clawback payment, um, which basically means it's getting some money back from the money it initially invested. That all sounds wonderful, but it's not reinvesting it back into broadband. Really? It's putting it back into general coffers to help balance its budget. Okay. Um, and I thought that was relatively just, um, you yeah, know, we wrote a story on that um, and, you yeah, know, it sort of went across the county. But some people have got in touch who are now, you will hear from later in the podcast, who are really annoyed that this £7.8 million is not being used to reinvest into broadband. Um, I spoke to a chap called Graham Long, who um, sits on a pottery parish council, and he is a real font of knowledge on this topic. He knows CDNs inside and out. Um, and yeah, he told me about the situation in the Blackdown Hills area where he lives.
9: Absolutely, there are still lots and lots of people in the black Hills who suffer from download speeds of what, 2 to 8 megabits? And um, Connecting Devon and Somerset have already received £6 million of clawback money from BT, which they have used to connect more people. Um, uh, That, I presume, was before they were broke but now they are choosing and saying that the next tranche of monies 7.8 million they will use it to help write off their deficit
2: and um that's uh that's that has been going on for some time um as Graham also told me when he told me the background of this
9: I, I think as i mentioned to you i actually met with our two local MPs richard ford and rebecca Powell, on um friday concerning other matters But um, I reminded her that we first met when she was a prospective candidate for Taunton Dean in 2015, and she attended a public meeting that our parish council organised in a pottery when we were being told by um, CDS that we were, quote unquote, too remote uh, just off the A303 for BT to connect um, broadband, fast broadband here.
2: And not far from uh, Graham is Steve Horner, a farmer with a finance background. Um, his uh, Steve's internet connection is very poor, and he described to me the very curious setup that he has just to provide some form of connectivity to his home.
10: I'm, as a, by a roundabout way, my connection to the local green BT box is about five kilometres of copper cable. Um, my then MP, Neil Paris. I complained to, he contacted a friend of his in BT, very senior, they sent along a consultant and they erected an aerial on the top of my barn, which from line of sight I can pick up um, an EE must. So I get a mobile signal into my office um, and that's it. Wow, So
2: so without what Neil Parrish did for you, do you think you'd have even less than you have now?
10: I would have a minimal speed, yes, that's correct.
2: Um, so yeah, without the uh, very inventive uh, ways of um, Neil Parrish, the former MP, helping uh, uh, Steve get some broadband there, it wouldn't be very good at all. Um, similar Senator Graham, Steve is also upset that Devon's repurposing this money into its general coffers.
10: I feel very strongly that it's uh, illegal. Those funds are ring-fenced and have to be used for the purpose for which they were paid over to Devon County Council or or can be drawn
2: down by Devon County Council. And um, it's important to say that um, Devon says it has sought legal advice, as I was going to say on there with uh, Steve. Sorry, the audio went on for a bit longer. Um, Devon has said that it's sought legal advice on this, and it is comfortable that it's able to use this clawback money for any purpose it likes. Uh, it says the cash will be used to support key services, such as adult social care and children's services. It also says that the government's Project gigabits now effectively supersedes connecting Devon and Somerset, therefore suggesting that Connecting Devon and Somerset doesn't need the money because the rollout of broadband will be taken on by central government. But but the money's there. The money, it's sitting... Sitting in their account, exactly. Is there it as was meant farther, for broadband, as Father Ted used to say, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, nevertheless, Steve isn't very hopeful about getting a more sophisticated and reliable connection anytime soon. Um, he sits on Yarkham Parish Council and um, he uses an interesting way to tell parishioners about the failings of the organizations that are tasked with rolling out full fibre across Devon.
10: Well, it, it has, it's half the parish is connected, um, but uh, since about 2015 very regularly i have published what i call a broadband broadside which because our parish is connected with sir francis drake it has a little galleon and a cannon and every so often i light a touch paper and the cannon booms and tell the village about the inefficiencies of cdns
0: We need Steve Horner on this podcast, don't we? Definitely. We'll have to get Steve Horner to come in. It's one of those things, if you mention it in the newsroom, things like fluoride in the water, broadband, they really get people angry, don't they? You must get the same thing, rural Somerset, you were talking earlier on about the transport difficulties.
1: Let's put it this way, if you go to Glastonbury and say the words 5G mast, (laughs) half of the people will look at you with complete indifference and half of them will want to burn you at the stake. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just share one very quick anecdote since we talked about connecting Devon and Somerset? um, Because we have had huge issues with certainly back in the county council's days of uh, open reach, pulling out of contracts. They having to divide the lots into three, getting them onto Exmoor was a nightmare. Um, One officer whom I won't name, um, who was in charge, the county council's main person of overseeing the CDS project. um, I ran into them only a couple of days ago. We were looking at one of the rural enterprise centres, which is just open, providing small business units. And they were taking some pictures and um, they came up to me and said, um, could you show me how to, to send these to the press team? Because I'm not very tech minded. Uh, you were in charge of our <laughs> broadband infrastructure and you say you're not tech minded. There's the problem in a nutshell. Absolutely.
0: Well, while we're talking about idyllic rural settings, let's finish on Dartmoor. It's, it's a lovely place. right? Never a raised voice or a crossword to interrupt the birdsong or the distant babble of the dart. Wrong. I was at a Dartmoor National Park Associ- uh, Authority, sorry, meeting a little while ago, uh, and heard about uh, the fact that in among the legions of people who love the moor, there is just that handful who don't. Uh, Marshals up on the moor logged two hundred and twenty bylaw infringements last summer uh, on issues from people staying overnight in motorhomes on the moor, fly camping by the roadside, which is different from wild camping, obviously. Uh, open fires, dogs off leads and even people starting to have uh, illegal raves up there in some of the uh, the larger, more remote areas. Uh, now, Head Ranger Simon Lee uh, is telling me that he's hoping the successful Marshall scheme will get the funding to carry on this year. Uh, so I asked him to talk about its success along with the benefits of rangers wearing body cameras. That was quite controversial when they started off, but they've proved their worth uh, to record any incidents. This is Simon Lee, the Head Ranger.
7: The Dartmoor Marshals help us provide a presence on the moor into the evenings when the, the range team doesn't have the capacity to do so. So they normally uh, work between July and September and they're out uh, every evening. Normally there are four of them out uh, every evening, apart from Friday and Saturday when there are six. And their, their role really is to, to patrol the moor at key honeypot locations, uh, make sure visitors understand uh, the special qualities of the National Park and how to enjoy it uh, sensibly and responsibly. Because I
0: imagine tens of thousands of people enjoy them or hundreds of thousands of people enjoy them more without any problem whatsoever. But there are a minority that, that maybe give you a headache now and then.
7: Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a very small minority that perhaps uh, don't realize what they can do or can't do. And, and an even smaller minority that sometimes... Know, don't always want to receive that message so it's important just to have a presence like i say explain to the vast majority just how they can enjoy it sustainably um and responsibly but also just to address any inappropriate behavior where they find it as you've come across
0: people lighting fires on the moor uh, there have been occasions when people have been trying to start raves on the moor um another weapon in your armory is the body cameras now that's going to continue for another year at least uh, after the uh, the success of the trial how important has that been for you
7: Yeah, the the body cams uh, were introduced about two years ago on a trial basis, and the authority members have agreed today to continue their use. And they've been a really useful tool for the team to have. They're they're not worn all the time, but they are there for members of the team to use when they feel it's appropriate. So it might be when they're dealing with a confrontational situation uh, or a situation where they feel that it might be useful to gather any evidence. But
0: apart from very isolated incidents like that, your job is all about getting out and engaging
7: with people, a, a kind of softer approach. Absolutely. We're educators first. You know, we, we, we realise that the, the the vast majority of people want to come to Dartmoor, enjoy it responsibly, uh, and perhaps just need a bit more information about how to do that. So absolutely, the range to more educators first.
0: There you go. Respect the more. Look after Dartmoor when you're up there visiting Exmoor, much the same. Uh, the wild places around Devon and Somerset, in fact, um, treat them with a bit of respect. Sounded a bit like Alan Partridge there. <laughs> I managed to get through nearly 45 minutes of podcast without lapsing into um, into absolute Partridge, but there you go, it does happen. Daniel, thank you very much for coming and joining us. Pleasure, thanks for being It's been great here. to have you along, nice to have a different perspective. Brad, thanks for coming up from rural... The, the, not the backwards of Devon, but you're you're out in the sticks a little bit. So out in the sticks
2: a little bit, yeah. Thank the the broadband's okay, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: thanks, Ali, for your input. Thanks, Honey, for your input as well. We'll be back with another Devoncast very, very soon. In the meantime, remember, it's Devoncast. It's not the Devoncast. Just keep that in mind. We'll be back very soon. Thanks for your company.
5: Catch the latest episode of Devoncast every Friday at radiox.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts.